to episode 57 of the Get In My Garden podcast. I'm Aaron Moskowitz, and today we have back Dan Long, Georgia beekeeper, discussing the life of bees and beekeeping in the winter. Dan covers some details about native bees and their life cycles, which are very different from honeybees. He tells us about what beekeepers can do for the honeybees in years of shortage or if honey has been over-harvested, and the number one thing we all can do as gardeners to help bees going into the future. Dan shares about how the large-scale beekeepers manage their hives in winter by moving them, storing them, and retrofitting them. And finally, we discuss some of the treatments beekeepers do to kill parasites during the winter brood break, and what exactly happens inside the hive when the bees recognize there is a problem. Follow the podcast on Instagram, at GetInMyGarden, and go to the website, GetInMyGarden.com, to sign up for the very special but still non-existent newsletter, where I will eventually share special content and freebies from my guests. As you may have heard, the Get In My Garden podcast is now an affiliate for Elaine Ingham's Soil Food Web Foundation course. If you're a farmer or gardener looking to take your knowledge of natural farming and soil restoration to the next level to increase yields and profits, or if you're interested in restoring soil and potentially making an impactful career out of saving the environment, head over to soilfoodweb.com slash getinmygarden to see what this training program has to offer. Thanks again, Dan, for coming back. I thought of you while I was talking to someone about the bees and what's going on with their beehives during the winter. So definitely interested in what you know. Right. Thanks for having me back on. My pleasure. Where you live in Georgia, what kind of winter do you have? Well, it is uh, the Piedmont of Georgia. So we're at 870 feet of elevation. It's not at all coastal, which many people think of Georgia as a sort of a hot, sweltery, almost Florida climate. We're um, up in the hills, not quite to the mountains. And uh, for example, this morning it was freezing. Uh Yesterday, uh, it topped out at 70 degrees. Oh, wow. We do have some cold weather. The ground typically does not freeze, but we go well below freezing as low as uh, I've been here for a decade and it's gone down as low as, uh, I think we had one night at six degrees Fahrenheit. Wow, okay. And how does that affect the bees? They certainly don't like it. Um, it, They're more affected uh, by the overall day temperatures uh, than that the the brief deep freezes that we have. As long as it's a a healthy colony, they're perfectly fine uh, controlling their temperature in the deep, deep freezes that we we experience periodically. What about food? I'm curious about that because I know that they're, you know, they're eating nectar and whatnot. So is that just a part of the life cycle of bees where a certain amount of the hive is going to die? Well, sure. Well, actually, uh, you know, the whole the whole reason that they store honey is to survive winter. Uh, that that's their whole their whole mo all spring long is we got to save up for winter. Gotcha. They're typically in in Georgia. The daytime temperature is warm enough that they can do what's called breaking cluster. Uh, and what that is is when it's really cold at night, they'll pack in really tightly together. Uh, around the queen and around any brood that they might have. I should emphasize, you know, if you, you have a, a fairly broad audience that all beekeeping is local, you have really different management techniques heading up into the, you know, frozen north, you know, up into the Arctic blur of Canada all the way down into the, the subtropics of Florida. What, what I do is I make sure they have enough honey uh, but still, they will often burn through whatever we leave them 
Uh, it depends on how active they are in the winter and how late the spring nectar flow hits. Typically speaking, during the daytime, it's warm enough here that they can break cluster and, and move around inside the hive and get to their honey stores. Uh, you, you hear stories of um, really cold climate beekeeping where the bees will not break cluster because it's so cold uh -huh. that they won't move just a few inches away to go get their honey stores to provide enough energy to what they do in order to keep warm enough is they, they vibrate their wing muscles that will, that will generate heat inside the, the cluster. Um, but in, here in Georgia, we, we really don't have a significant problem with that. We can feed them. They can reach their honey. Uh, it's pretty, pretty easy for that particular winter management process. Gotcha. Well, the, I, I learned recently that bees, the majority of them live in the ground, at least, I mean, not necessarily honeybees, other bees. Yeah, the native native bee species uh, typically are ground dwellers. Things like uh, bumblebees, uh, for example, will often inhabit um, abandoned rodent nests in the ground, little mouse nests and things, huh. similar things like that and other cavities created in the underground. They're probably less uh, sensitive to the winter temperatures then? They have a different life cycle, actually. Um, the apis I sound like such a novice because I really just don't know that much no, about bees. No, so. that's okay. Um, native, uh, many, many bee species don't have that full-on colony uh, called uh, eusociality uh, and that where you have overlapping generations and the entire colony survives through the winter. Uh, uh, many other species and, and others in Hymenoptera, which is the order that they're in, will uh, only the queen will survive. So it's not like a full-on colony that needs supplies and all this and that. It's, it's interesting. A, it's a different habit entirely. Gotcha. They lay the eggs, and I've learned a little bit about how they, you know, make them in little. They, you know, if it's like a long tube, they might fill one up with an egg and then put some mud or whatever, and then another egg. So then the whole family basically dies. And then what's left is the queen to redo that process, right? Uh, yeah, I think you're, you're, uh, you might be talking about Mason bees there, which is an entirely different cycle. And that is Mason bees are very cool. They will find uh, holes or create holes in wood and uh, they will lay eggs in there and provision those eggs each one and then pack a layer of mud after that. And they're leaf cutters that will do the same with leaves. Uh, okay. they're, they're laying an egg, packing it with provisioning it with supplies some pollen and nectar, and then, and then sealing that up and then further out toward the entrance of the hole, they'll do another one and another, another, a sequence of four or five of them, I think in most cases. And then that will be the only thing that survives through till the next year. And they will, they will grow and, and emerge uh, one time for one life cycle the next year. Wow. What can people do for bees? I know that you're like, we always hear the save the bees, save the bees. And I think during winter is, you know, in a lot of areas they go starving. So um, is there anything we can do? Like if, if you were to take honey from your uh, beehives and then not leave enough. Is there anything you can do to fix that situation? Sure. Well, there, there are plenty of beekeepers who, who probably harvest too much, but there are also colonies that don't produce enough of their own where the beekeeper said, okay, you can keep everything, uh, but it's still not quite enough. Many of us, most of us will find times that we have to supplement their food. And we have various means of doing that, but it's typically a, a sugar syrup that's used 
the commercial guys use uh, high fructose corn syrup. Mm-hmm. You know, it's carbohydrates, it's energy for them. It's not, it's not as healthy as nectar, uh, but um, it, it does work. It's a proven technique. And, and I, I certainly, uh, I do, I do lay in a good supply of sugar every winter um, because oftentimes my colonies uh, in this part of the country, uh, they begin to build up when the days get longer and the pollen sources begin. But that for us happens a lot sooner than the nectar flow begins. So we've got the longer days and the pollen coming in that triggers the colony into activity and into raising new bees for the spring. So they have a tendency here to burn through all of their supplies. That's really interesting. Yeah, so we supplement food. And some people do it um, with jugs outside of the hive. Some people um, put it in Ziploc bags with a tiny little slice in it, and they drink off of the, the, the little opening there that, that it's oozing out of. Uh, I typically use two different types of internal feeders. One of them uh, slides into place where frames would normally go, and it's like a, a long, skinny jug inside the, inside the hive box. Wow. And then I have other, other ones that actually sit on top of the hive. Uh, and you can actually invert a mason jar with little holes in the lid on top of the hive uh, in, into a hole. All of those work well. That's really cool. So basically during the winter, no matter where you are, unless it's maybe tropical, they're really just not going far at all. It sounds like maybe there's not much that others can do, like people who are not beekeeping, they can do for their, you know, their neighborhood or something. Well, the best thing you can do now, and not just for honeybees, but for all of our native pollinators, is you can, you can plan your garden now. Mm-hmm. And you can think in terms of what are known species of flowering plants that are really good for a pollinators. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly happy for honeybees to be sort of the poster child for uh, the plight of pollinators. They're not at such great risk as our natives are. And uh, I think, I think it'd be really great if more people are aware as a result of saving the honeybee that they're actually going to be saving literally thousands of other species of native pollinators in the U S mm-hmm. and are, they are in peril. Uh, and the, the big peril is uh, primarily uh, habitat loss. Uh, you know, we talk about pesticides and, and people worry about various things, um, but habitat loss is the big number one thing. They need plenty of diverse forage, uh, you know, lots of different wildflowers, lots of different tree species. You know, people don't think about trees being uh, good for, for bees. Uh, people look at wildflowers where they see the bees, but uh, one good tree can replace acres of clover wow. in terms of nectar, uh, nectar quantity and quality. What are some good trees that are, I mean, obviously each area is different, but trees that you think are best for that? Sure. Uh, well, there, there are plenty of um, early ones. Maple is a fine one, mostly for pollen. And then uh, tulip poplar has uh, really just tremendous volumes of nectar, some springs. Uh, and then um, some of the neat ones that are not really common, uh, but really wonderful are uh, basswoods. And the reason for that is at least in our part of the country, they begin to bloom as our typical nectar flow starts to fall away. Uh, we really have a short nectar flow here in the Piedmont of Georgia. And, and so they kind of pick up the pace as we go into summertime and really supplement their, their nectar needs. 
Cool. When you have a tree like that, does it uh, change the flavor of the honey a lot? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The nectar source is key to the flavor and the character of the honey. Uh, you know, things like uh, orange blossom honey and tupelo honey and sourwood honey are all prized for their particular characteristics. Uh-huh. And, you know, at the farmer's market, I, I think that there are a couple very, very, very big uh, beekeeping companies that they kind of have infiltrated the farmer's market, at least in New Mexico. I don't want to offend people. I don't know this for sure. I haven't visited their operations, but they've got a whole long list of different honeys they're selling. And I'm slightly skeptical about its origin. Like, I don't know what, if there's like some sort of trade that goes on, you know, in the region or if they're even, or maybe they're not necessarily from the trees that they say. Well, there, you know, a a reputable company is a reputable company and, and that's, you know, there's a level of trust that you have to have. And, uh, certainly if they are out there, if they are selling Tupelo honey, then they're buying it from somebody in, um, the Georgia, Florida border region and. Mm-hmm. They, in turn, have to trust their, their source that that is uh, um, actual pure Tupelo. A good honey taster can tell you, yeah, sure, that's Tupelo, or yeah, that's that's definitely got sourwood characteristics to it. You know, if they really know what they're talking about, then they are selling the real deal. Anything else you'd like to share with people? Most of the listeners, or a lot of them, they're really interested in bees, but they're not necessarily beekeeping. As I, I sort of rambled through a whole little part of this. Uh, That was really good and interesting. The fact that it it is definitely very local, you know, the way we take care of our bees versus say in uh, a lot of the big commercial guys will winter their bees in Florida. And that's, Uh that's because there is forage year round for them. There's always something in bloom. And so they take advantage of that. And that actually, that allows them to keep the bee population large uh, so one of their primary goals is to have colonies bursting full of bees as they head into February to go off to the almond fields in California. And So that's like this amazing process. I didn't, I mean, I think we've all heard about it, but it almost sounds like we've got it completely under control and that there really is no risk to the honeybees because we need them so much and we've committed so much to saving them already. Well, really, and you know, I, as I mentioned, it's great that they are the poster child for, for saving pollinators, and that's a good thing. But really, the, the risk is more economic. Mm-hmm. Honeybees themselves are not going extinct. The rate of loss is concerning, and it parallels a rate of loss in the wild populations of native pollinators. But there's nobody growing new native pollinators specifically on any kind of mass scale like they do with honeybees. You know, there's there's a huge industry uh, of people that that grow their own bees. You know, they make new colonies yeah. to compensate for the losses. Yeah, it's it, the almond fields are, are a driving force in all commercial migratory pollinator uh, companies. Gotcha. I, you were you didn't get to finish your story, I think, because I I said something there. But yeah, we're talking about uh, in Florida, they can they can forage year round. Uh, and southern Texas is another place where the commercial guys keep them for that reason. Then as you head north into colder climates, we have a shorter season, but not quite so much risk. We simply we close up our hives a little bit, we reduce the entrances and if we're using screened bottom boards, we'll often we'll close those. Um, some people will uh, put uh, wind breaks around their colonies to try to help keep them a little bit warmer. 
Uh -huh. um, and then as, as you head further north, it becomes more of a concern for things like snow. Uh, in those cases, they're actually, they're installing top entrances. So you see, you know, you see this stack of boxes of the, of the, the beehive. Um, typically speaking, the entrance is at the bottom, but those folks that are in higher snow regions, they'll actually, they'll make a, an opening at the top just in case there's enough snowfall that it covers the lower entrance because they want those bees to be able to ventilate, get oxygen, mm -hmm. go fly. They, they need to fly out and well, they defecate uh, just like any other animal. And so they need to do that periodically. They can hold it for a long time, but they do need to go out eventually and, and defecate. Wow. So even in the coldest climates, they have to leave once in a while throughout Every the winter. once in a while. They, they can hold it for quite a long time. It's, it's good for them to get out. now. And then you head up into the even colder regions, and there are actually uh, services that will hold your entire uh, apiary, your bee yard. They'll, you, can, you can pick it up and move it and put it into cold storage for the winter. Wow. That actually, it helps to protect them from the variations in temperature and the deepest of cold. Interesting. I wonder though, I mean, when you put a bunch of hives together, I'm sure happens. I've heard a little bit about it in California with the almond season. Like if you have an infected hive, how it might affect the neighbors. Yeah, there is a possibility of that. Um, you get uh, what we call drift, uh, where a forager will fly out and then return to the wrong colony. Um, if they're coming back loaded with nectar, um, they'll be let right in. No problem at all. Oh, interesting. There's a, a colony parasite called small hive beetle uh, that uh, will move from hive to hive. It actually flies as well, but it can crawl from hive to hive if you've got them all on a rack. Wow. Another important thing about uh, winter is uh, the, the life cycle of the colony includes raising um, baby bees, you know, uh, eggs and larvae, uh, most of the year in our climate. If we're lucky, it actually gets cold enough that the queen will stop laying eggs entirely. Hmm. The reason I say if we're lucky is because there's a, there's a very significant parasite called Varroa destructor. We probably spoke about it last time. Yes. The Varroa mite thrives in the larvae, in the brood of the colony. And when there is no brood at all, all of those mites are up on the adult bees instead, and they don't do nearly as well, and their population dwindles as a result. Um, it's also an opportunity for those of us who treat uh, with oxalic acid vapors to do a very, very effective treatment on those mites uh, when there is no brood because uh, the oxalic acid does not get underneath capped brood, and that would be the, pu uh -huh. the pupating bees. And so... We get a really effective treatment when there's no brood at all. So this is actually right now, when, as we're recording this, this is just the right time of year for us. Oh, very cool. And with that cold storage opportunity you're talking about, could that be something that you, so if you put them in cold storage and it stops her from laying eggs, is that a time that someone could potentially do that treatment? Absolutely. Also, the other thing is for up in, up in the deeper north, there's a lot longer brood break. Mm-hmm. As a result of that, more and more of those varroa mice are dropping off and dying off because, again, they're, they're not nearly as successful on the adults as they are, and they don't reproduce on the adults at all. They only reproduce down in the brood. Gotcha. And I heard there's certain varieties that they'll just, 
uh, sea of varroa mite and crush it and drop it at the bottom. And they, I guess the Russian bees or something like that. Sure. Yeah. There's some that seem to be more effective against them than others. The Russians, uh, the Russian genetics in particular are looked at for that. Uh, and there are a lot of breeding programs where they're selecting colonies for that. It's called varroa sensitive hygiene. Uh, where hmm. They will, um, well, there are several different things. There's VSH, varroa sensitive hygiene, where they will sense the varroa down in the capped cell and they'll uncap it and tear that larva out. And the, um, the young mites that are in there developing don't survive that. Then there are other ones they now, they're calling ankle biters uh, that seem to actually physically attack the adult varroa mites, as you were mentioning. Wow, it's amazing. If there's anything else you would like to add, or if you want to talk about your own work in any way, feel free. Uh, no, I would say I, w I would just mention again that um, if people want to help honeybees and pollinators in general, this is a great time to plan your garden for spring and think in terms of pollinator-friendly flowers. I like it. Great reminder. Thank you so much, Dan. Oh, you're quite welcome. I'm, I'm happy to be uh, happy to be talking with you about this. I hope you enjoyed this interview. My goal is that you are inspired this winter to continue your learning, your hobbies, your projects, and your businesses related to natural farming, hydro and aquaponics, bees and pollinator insects, fungi and mycology, soil and the soil food web, microbes, plants, and however you are involved in entertaining yourself in a way that benefits the earth and our future. Be an ambassador for the fungi and the bees and start planning your garden right now. Also, as I mentioned, the podcast is now an affiliate for Elaine Ingham's Soil Food Web Foundation course. If you are a farmer or gardener looking to take your knowledge of natural farming and soil restoration to the next level to increase yields and profits, or if you are interested in restoring soil and potentially making an impactful career out of saving the environment, head over to soilfoodweb.com slash getinmygarden to see what this training program has to offer you. Follow this show at getinmygarden on Instagram to see pictures of what we discuss here and to hear about upcoming episodes. Also visit getinmygarden.com and make sure to sign up for the email list, which will soon include supplemental and special content or freebies from our guests, as well as articles and other interesting things I share with my close friends.